our Lord Jesus, we too gladly, boldly, unreservedly confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We, your church, rest on that truth, and on that truth you have built us. In building us, you've made every provision for our protection and our perseverance, that the gates of Hades would not overcome us. And you made every provision for our instruction and our direction. We learn about that today. Teach us by your blessed Holy Spirit, whom you've poured out on your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having no pretensions of being a pope, I don't have any problems admitting I made a mistake. I shouldn't have rushed the last part of last week's sermon. I regretted that very quickly. So we're going to go back and open that up some more. And what better day to do it than the day when we also mark the movement of God called the Reformation. That part of Jesus' gift to Peter, the binding and the loosing that explains the keys of the kingdom. I take you to Luther's heresy trial before the parliament in the city of Worms, or we also call it the Diet of Worms. That's not a prescription for a low-carb odd meal, uh, but it's a a council that's held in a particular city, the city of Worms. In 1521, Luther was tried for heresy, the heresy in question being that he preached the gospel and he criticized the pope. He believed the word of God over the pope and councils. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church couldn't have that. So he wanted to have a debate. They didn't want to have a debate. They just wanted him to recant. They wanted him to reject what he'd written and what he'd said. And the cost could be his life. Well, you know Luther's climactic statement. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures. Hear that. I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go in against against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Well, it would be very wicked to pretend that I have studied German or know German when I haven't. I know a few words. I tried to find Luther's speech in German, and the best I could find, when he says that his conscience is bound, that he's bound to the Scriptures, he uses the word gebunden. And I do have Luther's German Bible, and I looked up this verse we're studying, Matthew 16, 19, And when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in the heavens, Luther uses that word, gebunden, bound by Scripture. Now, this is a central, critical truth that is under heavy fire from all sides today, expectedly from outside the professing church, but sadly also from within the professing church in very subtle ways. It's the teaching of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, The children of the Reformation later came to uh, sum up the teachings rediscovered from Scripture, recovered from Scripture, as the five solas. And the first of those solas is the foundation of the rest. Sola Scriptura, meaning that Scripture alone is the Christian's final court of appeal. It's our final and ultimate, and it should also be our first, (laughs) uh, place to go to find and hear the Word of God. It's the teaching that Scripture alone is God's voice to us. Scripture is without error, 
Scripture is sufficient and Scripture is binding on the conscience. And that teaching is based on the truth in Matthew 16.19. So we will look at that more closely today. The, the gift of a sufficient Scripture is how Christ rules His church. He rules His church by the living, binding, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. So let's look together first, Roman numeral one, at the excellence of Christ's gift. The excellence of Christ's gift. And to get that, we've got to refresh our minds about the, the, the background against which he spoke it. Turn to Matthew chapter 23 with me, place where he rounds on the teachers of the law. And in verses... Uh, well, I should start with verse 1 because it actually matters. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. Okay, all the verses matter. I heard myself say that and I didn't like it. All the verses matter. I just mean it matters for understanding this section. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, and when I translate it, I'm sure I'll translate it, all that they say to you, do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. You notice the words things in them are in italics, meaning they're not in the Greek texts. So I'll read it again. For all that they say to you, do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say and do not do. What, was it, what did it mean for them to be in Moses' chair? Well, you need to remember that they were living at a time when not everybody could read, and of the, the relative few who could read, they didn't have copies of the Word of God. They didn't have copies of the Torah. So it was these educated people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, who could read and who had copies of the Torah, and so they would read those copies, and it's to that that Jesus refers here. When they read the Word of God, and so he's saying, when they read the Word of God, you keep that and you do that, but you need to know this. They say and they don't do. So the problem is not that they didn't practice what they preached. They practiced what they preached, but they didn't preach the Word of God. They would read the Word of God, and that was the end of reliable teaching. <laughs> then they started telling you what it meant, and that's where they went astray. And that was what Jesus said not to follow because he called their teaching hypocrisy, as, as we'll be reminding ourselves in just a moment. They could read the Word of God fine, but they didn't believe it and they didn't teach it. Their teaching was, as we'll see, the tradition of men. Like you might go into a Roman Catholic church or an Anglican church or an Orthodox church uh, where the, the leadership does not believe the Word of God, but still part of their service is they read the Word of God. That part's good. It's what happens after that that's problematic and what happens before that. So, this in mind, turn back to Matthew chapter 2 and see an example of exactly what he's talking about. So, Herod's all upset because these Gentile uh, dignitaries have come and they're looking for the Messiah. And Herod figures he can turn to the experts to find out where Messiah was to be born. So he gathers together these chief priests and scribes. What party were most of the chief priests of? They're Sadducees. What party were many of the scribes of? They're Pharisees. That's worth keeping in mind. So these are Sadducees and Pharisees he's called together. And he asks them where Christ was to be born. And notice they had the answer. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written in the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5.2. Well, they're absolutely right when they quote the scripture. And then what do they do? 
they don't go to Bethlehem to find the Messiah. So you say they've got the right answer, but it has no impact on their lives. Or you could say what Jesus says in Matthew 23. What did he say? They say, but they don't do. They say Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, but they don't go there to find him. But they do come out to hear John in Matthew chapter 3. John's preaching the word of God. And look who happens to be there. Verse 7, Pharisees and Sadducees. But what does John say to them? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He wasn't impressed. He called them vipers. What's characteristic of a viper? Well, a viper is poisonous and kills those it bites. Where's the first snake we read about in the Bible? Right, that'd be Genesis 3. And that's Satan. And the text says that it, he was more crafty than any beast of the field. He's deceptive. And you see this in, in other scriptures, that the, the viper, the snake, is deceptive and, and fools people because it's so sneaky and sly. And so he calls them vipers. Sadducees and Pharisees. There it is again. And then in chapter 5, when Jesus preaches his um, agenda, his manifesto of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say in verse 20, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20? He says, But I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What, what is that about? What is that about? Is it that it's more of a righteousness than the law of God? No, it's not that because he goes on to expound the law of God. But the trouble with the scribes and the Pharisees was they did not do the law of God. They made a traditional and deceptive way of getting around the law of God, of checking external boxes, but not from the heart at all, loving God or being humble before God. And so he gets at their spirit a number of places, but I'll just point you to chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Well, who did that? the scribes and the Pharisees, and anyone taught by them, anyone who accepted their teaching, went that same way. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen of men. And he he strikes that note a number of times in this. See, their hypocrisy does not lie in that they preached something and didn't practice it. They practiced what they preached. The problem was their preaching was hypocrisy. They preached as if they revered the word of God, but they did not revere the word of God. They preached as if they loved God, but they did not love God. Their whole doctrinal system was a way of getting around God and God's word, you see, and that is what buries it under tradition. And so go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verses 24 through the end. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, that's good to to make note of and keep in your mind for everything we're going to look at through the rest of the sermon. Who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on a petra. He uses that Greek word on bedrock, the same word he uses in chapter 16 about Peter's profession of faith. Like one who builds his house on a petra and when the storm of God's judgment falls, his house stands. But anyone hearing, there's, there it is again, these words of mine and not doing them is like a fool who builds his house on the sand and God's judgment falls and he falls with it.
Now here it is a third time, verse 28. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words. So that's stress, verse 24. These words of mine, verse 26. These words of mine, verse 28. These words which Jesus finished. The crowds were astonished. Why? Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He both taught them as someone who actually believed the word of God and got to its heart, but also he himself, being the son of the living God, spoke the words of God. And his words were equally reliable to the words of Scripture. But that's not like the scribes and Pharisees. They're all about the tradition of men. So I'm just going to allude to chapter 9 where they fault Jesus for hanging around with sinners. And, and we note he hung around them because he was, they, were being, they were converted. They wanted to hear his word and follow him. And the doctor went to the sick people, but they didn't like that. And what did Jesus say? You know what? You need to go read your Bible. You need to go look in Hosea where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And did they do that? I'll just wait right here. I know it's hard to tell rhetorical questions, but did they do that? Did they go look that Bible verse up and convert? <laughs> Not at all. Not a bit of it. No, no, no. They kept on right in the same line they were going. So now, we'll skip a number of verses we could look at to chapter 15. And here's the more immediate context. And let's freshen our minds here. So the big men come down from Jerusalem to, to see the Messiah. And what great and weighty things do they want to talk with the Messiah about? What, what would you want to talk to the Messiah about if you were an expert in the law and he finally came? Here he is. You can go talk to him. What do you want to talk to him about? Well, they come from Jerusalem. And their big pressing issue, verse 2, is why don't your disciples wash their hands ritually? Now, where's that in the Old Testament? Uh, let's see, that's the book of nowhere. <laughs> that's where it is. Chapter 1, verse 1 of no book. But that was their big concern. So why do they break the, tra the tradition of the elders? And what's Jesus just quick draw response to them? Verse 3, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your transgression? This was the whole clash. Jesus affirmed a, true, a, a sufficient scripture. They did not. They buried it under human tradition. And so he absolutely nails them for their traditional uh, sidestepping of, of what the Word of God says. And then he says in verse 7, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you that they honor me with their lips, their hearts far away. What do they do? Verse 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Now these are the teachers of that day. If you were a poor, humble Jew and you wanted to get taught the Word of God, well, they were the only game in town, basically. I mean, put yourself back in pre-Reformation Germany or anywhere. What church do you want to go to today, honey? Let's see, um, I guess the Catholic Church. <laughs> Why? On the game in town. I want to go hear the Word of God. Where shall we go? Uh, I guess the Catholic Church. And you'll go there and it'll all be in Latin. You won't understand a word. That's okay because the priests are doing everything for you. You just have to sit there. Basically, do what they say. But that's not scriptural worship. And that is not the Word of God in Jesus' day. They buried it under tradition. And Jesus just calls that hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy. Yeah, they practiced what they preached. And what they preached, you see, was hypocrisy. Next chapter, chapter 16. Pharisees and Sadducees. Boy, these guys did not pair up very often. But they did have one thing in common. They hated them some Jesus. 
They did not want him teaching. So they paired to test him. Oh, that'll go well. And they want a sign from heaven. And Jesus says, basically, you idiots can read the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. The Old Testament spells out no sign for you except the sign of Jonah. And he left them, and then he warns his disciples in verse 6, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, those are those guys we just saw. Yes, beware of their leaven. And you know, we studied it. They all knocked their heads together, figuring out about, well, we forgot bread. That must be what he's talking about. And he knocks their heads together. And they finally understand in verse 12 that he was warning them to beware of what? the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But that's kind of a problem, you see. Do you see now? Because they were it. If you want, you didn't have a Bible. Poor man, regular working man in his family. You didn't have a copy of the Bible. You wanted to be taught the Bible. You had to go to these guys. And Jesus says, beware of their teaching. Well, what, what, what's the plan going forward now? And, and spoiler alert, towards the end of this chapter, we just read it. What does Jesus say he's going to do? Well, he's going to die. So what is God's people going to do for teaching? Well, that brings us to the heart of what we were just studying then. Let's look at the promise in verse B. We looked at the background, uh, verse B, letter B. We looked at the background, letter A. Now the promise in uh, letter B, which is chapter 16, verses 16 through 19. And the basis of Jesus' gift is found in verses 16 and 17. Simon Peter said, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but rather my Father who is in heaven. So as we, as we studied, this confession, this true confession of the identity of Christ, that's going to be the basis on which he will build his church. And that confession is a result of a work of God, as Jesus had spoken of in chapter 11, that God hides these things from the wise and intelligent, but reveals them to babes. And this is not in the case, uh, the case of a revelation of new things unknown, but a revelation of things known, but not appreciated, not seen truly. And like all the people of that day, they had the facts of Christ before them, but Jesus is saying that you would confess me as the Christ, the Son of the living God, shows me that God has revealed that in your heart. God has opened your eyes to this truth so that you now confess this. So what Jesus is going to do is going to be based on that bedrock, the truth of who he is. And that church that we'll read about in a moment is going to be uh, made up of people who make that confession. They will self-identify by that confession. But the truth rests on the truth of who Jesus is confessed by lips of people to whom God has revealed that truth. It comes from a heart, a converted heart of faith. And the heart believes, as Paul says, and the mouth confesses. And that's just what we see here in these verses. It's just what we see Peter doing, providing the basis on which Christ will, will build his church. And now let's look at its specifics. Number two in verses 18 and 19. And there are three. Uh, the second is twofold. But there are three parts to the specifics. The first is in what Jesus will do. 
We find that in verse 18. And I, I also say to you that you, you are Petros, which means rock. And on this Petra, which is a bedrock, I shall build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I won't re-preach that verse, but Petros is a rock you can hold in your hand. This distinction doesn't always hold, but this is the distinction that was made in Greek, uh, classical Greek, and it's the distinction between the words. Peter's a rock. That was his nickname. Nobody was named Peter in his day. Uh, it was a nickname, Rock. And on this Petra now, not this rock you can hold in your hand, but the rock like we saw back in chapter 7, a rock you can build a house on, a bedrock, a slab of rock. On this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower, which is to say even death won't swallow up the church that I will make. It won't die off as so many religions and cults have done. This will not die off. Jesus makes this this promise. Now, what I want to highlight for you and I want to stress for you today is that when he says, I will build my church, this is a new people of God. That's a, a future tense verb. Oikodomeso, I will build my church. Not something that's happened before, not something that is happening at that time. It's going to happen in the future. And you might I mean, you have to put yourself back in the day to realize what a statement that was. What do you mean you're going to build? There's already the nation of Israel. You've told us not to go, but, but, but to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These are the people of God. These are his firstborn, as he calls it in the Old Testament. What do you mean you're going to build your church? Well, there it is. It is a new people of God. It's not going to be Israel. But it will be, obviously, it will include people of Israel because... Who was the person who just made this confession? Let's see. Was he a Californian? Um, no, he was a, he was a Jew. It would be made up of Jews, but not just of Jews. Now, that truth is going to wait to be opened up. We studied about that in Sunday school. But um, a new people of God, and, and uh, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, on equal footing, with equal promises, and equal membership in the body of Christ, they're equally going to be part of this, this construction, uh, while Israel as a nation is going to be benched. Now, God has made promises to them, which he will still fulfill. Uh, the church doesn't replace Israel. It doesn't become Israel. But Israel is benched. We saw that in chapter 12. That generation committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, was forsaken by the Holy Spirit. And so now Jesus would build his church, this new people of God. And as we're going to see, this new people of God will have a new infallible teaching office. As the Pharisees and Sadducees had absolutely failed as the teachers of the people of God, so Jesus would create a teaching office that would infallibly teach the people of God. And that's what we find in the next verse, what Jesus will give. So letter A, what Jesus will do, he will build his church on the truth of his identity confessed by human lips. Lips touched by the revealing work of God the Father. But now letter B, we see what Jesus will give. I shall give to you. Now that is just as future as the verb I will construct. And so we should look to this to be as future as that action. He will give this gift when he constructs his church. So 
Spoiler alert again, day of Pentecost. Not, not then, day of Pentecost. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. He's still speaking to Peter. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in the heavens. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in the heavens. So first aspect is keys. And we looked at that in some length last week. I won't repeat all that. We looked at Isaiah 22. And we saw that the keys uh, were there, a symbol of the office of a steward. Now, who's a steward? He's basically under the house owner, over the house. The house owner owns the house. And in the case of Isaiah 22, the king... And the steward is under the king and over the house. He, he controls access to the house. He controls access within the house. Peter's got keys, more than one. So it has to do with who comes in and out. It also has to do with, with uh, access within. And, and that, that idea of keys came to be seen as connected to the authority of the teachers of the law. People hearing Jesus speak in his day would associate that with the authority to teach the law of God. In fact, we see that reflected in Luke 11.52. Jot it down, but I'll just read it to you. Luke 11.52, Jesus says, Woe to you, scholars of the law. Woe to you, scholars of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Meaning either the key to knowledge or the key that itself is knowledge. Scholars of the law, other translations say lawyers, but that's what it means, so we don't think of modern tort lawyers or whatever, Uh, but it was somebody who was an expert in the law of God, or gave himself out as an expert in the law of God, and he says these lawyers, these scholars of the law, have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Well, so see, they had the key of knowledge because they were supposed to be teachers, but they didn't use the the key to open up the kingdom of heaven to the people, and they didn't go in themselves. Their teaching steered people away from the kingdom of the heavens uh, that they had not entered themselves. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? John 3, Nicodemus comes with all this flattery about Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what though? Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. And then he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, they didn't see it and they didn't enter it and they were turning people away from it. But Jesus would give that to Peter. I give you this key. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now comes the second aspect, binding and loosing. Whatever you bind upon the earth will have been bound in the heavens and whatever you loose upon the earth will have been loosed in the heavens. So this explains what the keys do. We've seen Peter last week. We looked at him exercising it in opening the church to Jews in Acts 2, to half-Jews in Acts 8, to full-on Gentiles in Acts 10. But more than that involves the teaching within the household of God. The teaching. So what we saw as the power of the rabbis that had been exercised by Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers that office of teaching would now be given uh, in this verse to Peter. Now we're going to see more about that, but he's speaking to Peter, and he's transferring this, this office to Peter. Now, the idea of binding and loosing, as I explained last week very quickly, but the idea of binding and loosing, a Jew would have immediately recognized that that had to do with permitting and forbidding, that this practice on the Sabbath, say, is bound. You're, you're forbidden to do that, but this, pro- this practice is loosed. It's for- 
for, uh, permitted. Uh, you can pull your, your uh, donkey out of a pit, maybe, but you, you can't look at yourself in a mirror. You know, they had all sorts of laws about the Sabbath, things that they bound and they loose. But it meant more than just that. It had to do with teaching authoritatively that this is truth and this is error. This is false teaching and this is true teaching. This is all part of binding and loosing. It, it has both legislative and judicial uh, aspects to it, this binding and loosing. Uh, judging, condemning, expelling, forgiving, restoring. This is all within the idea of binding and loosing. It's the whole area of authoritative teaching and what flows to, from that. Jesus is giving this to Peter when he gives him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So in sum, Jesus is giving Peter the office of the church's official teacher. He will build the church on the confessed truth of his divine messiahship. And he will give to Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the ability that what he binds and looses, let me get to this now, will be what heaven previously bound and loosed. Now you notice, we talked about this last week, but you notice the strange syntax. What you bind will have been bound? Well, what's that about? Well, it is just as awkward in Greek as it is in... You would expect Jesus to say well, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So like you'll do something in heaven, we'll say, all right. <laughs> and then you'll lose something and that'll be loosed in heaven. Heaven will say, okay, all right. You say so, Peter. But he's not saying that, see. He's saying instead that what Peter does will reflect the previous binding and loosing in heaven. So this is a guarantee of infallible, infallible teaching. It's a guarantee of the work of the Holy Spirit teaching him, leading him, so that what he does doesn't, isn't reflected in heaven, do you see? But what he does reflects heaven, the previous truth in heaven. So when, Peter, when Christ builds his future church, Peter will be a steward, and in that role as steward, his teaching will be God's teaching. What he binds and looses will be what was already bound, already loosed in heaven. Well, now, that takes some head scratching and understanding, and let's get to doing that. Let's talk about the fulfillment of this in letter C. Is he just talking to Peter? I can imagine you saying, well, now it sounds like we're back to Peter being a pope. And I'll just hurry to say, well, if he is, then the Bible has no idea of a succession has no, not a word about other people being given this by Peter or inheriting it from Peter. The Bible doesn't t treat Peter as if he's in a different league from the rest of the apostles. So, no, that's not the direction of the truth. But we need to look to Scripture to see what the truth is. And we need to look to the fulfillment. That's letter C. How did this actually work out? What is the fulfillment? Well, we need to take a half step back to understand Peter's unique role and his unique role was first among equals. After you fill that out, turn back to chapter 10. Peter had a unique role as first among equals. A unique role as first among equals. And I don't know Latin either, but I do know the phrase uh, primus inter pares, which just means first among equals. But when you say it in Latin, you sound so much smarter. But back in chapter 10, here Jesus is commissioning uh, the apostles to go out preaching, and he gives them authority over unclean spirits, but what I want you to look at is verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon who is called Peter, and so on. Now, 
we didn't really need Matthew to tell us that that was the first name on the list, did we? <laughs> we? I'm not great at math, but I think I could have figured out that the first name on the list is the first name on the list. So why does he say first? Because he's first among the apostles. He's not more of an apostle than they. He's not less of an apostle than they. But he was first. His name is first on every list, just like Judas' name is last on every list. But he's not just first named. You see him being first a number of times. Now, I won't take the time to look at this in detail right now, but you'll see that often when the disciples are asked a question, Peter answers. I can think of a time that happened. Can't you? Passage we're looking at right now. He asks all of them, who do you say I am? That's plural. One guy speaks up. It's Peter. Well, that's not the only time that happens. And there's another, there are other times when he speaks for the apostles. We've left everything for you. What will we receive in the kingdom, Peter asks. And there are a number of places he goes first. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, he goes first in preaching on the day the church is born. He goes first to uh, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the um, Samaritans that Philip has preached to. He goes first to the Gentile. So God has put him in a first position, but it's a first among equals. They're all called apostles, but Peter's name is first, first among equals. So when Jesus speaks to Peter and gives the keys to Peter, how is he giving to him to, them to Peter? To Peter only? No, to Peter's first among equals. What he's giving to Peter will be shared by the rest because of, number two, Peter's shared office, and that shared office is apostle. That's the equals part. He's not more of an apostle or less of an apostle than all the rest of them. So let's talk a little bit about that office of apostle. And first, I want you to tell you that the office was invented by Jesus. Letter A, it was invented. Invented by Jesus in Luke chapter 6. I'll just read that to you. Jesus had spent the whole night in prayer, and when day came, he called, now listen though, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he named as apostles. So first we see a separation. All followers, all students of Jesus, all pupils of Jesus are called what? They're all disciples. But of that larger set, he selects a much smaller subset, 12, and he calls them apostles. So all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Uh, it's not the, the most precise thing when we refer to the 12 disciples. There's lots of disciples. Every Christian in this room is a disciple. But there's just the 12 apostles and then later Paul. Uh, but in the Gospels, there's just the 12 apostles. So Jesus invented it. Jesus called them apostles. So this is Jesus' word for them. We shouldn't look at society and Jewish writing and so forth to figure out what that word means. We need to look to Jesus to see what the word means. And the, the, the word apostolos just comes from the verb apostello, which means to send. But the idea of an apostolos, an apostle, is that person is a, a, a delegate. He's a delegate with a G, not delicate. But he's a delegate. He's somebody who represents. He's an envoy. He's an emissary. Like, for instance, if I, if I might take Dean Rother uh, for a place where I'm not able to go, but I tell him exactly what I want done, exactly what my parameters are, and I authorize him to speak on my behalf. And Dean goes to whatever it is, and what he does, he does in my name. He's my envoy. He's my emissary. He's my apostle. 
However, in this case, this would have been a sec- purely secular activity of me explaining things, and it would depend on how, well, how clear I was and how well Dean understood me. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the emissary part, the delegate part, the representation part, yes, but the ability to be that was supernatural, not natural. It was not because they were great students, because Lord knows we've seen a number of times they weren't that great. They weren't that great students, but when Jesus builds his church, he'll pour out the Holy Spirit, and we'll see in just a moment, it is by the work of the Holy Spirit that they will be enabled to be delegates, emissaries, representatives of Jesus Christ. So the predominant way that that word is used in the New Testament is a representative. It's the office of apostle. And Peter was one of 12 in the Gospels who shared that office, and later Paul would also share that office. It was invented by Jesus. And secondly, letter B, it is invested with authority and supernatural ability to speak for Jesus. Turn to John 14. Flip, 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 tap, tap, tap. Whichever one you're doing, but turn to John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse. Jesus teaching just before he's arrested, tried, crucified. He's saying this to the apostles, to that small group. And Judas leaves them. But to them, he says in John 14, verses 25 and 26... These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Advocate, the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now note well, he is not saying, you boys have just the best memories, I am so proud of you, all those gold stars in your books. No. He says, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. And by this supernatural divine work, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. This is a work of the third person of the Trinity. Now, these words are often misused and misapplied as if they were uh, about illumination. This is something that you and I experience when we feel like maybe the Holy Spirit is nudging us or we feel like maybe the Holy Spirit is is pushing us. This this is nothing about that. If this is that, then it's never been fulfilled yet. Because who did he teach then, if that's the case? If this is just illumination, who did he teach? The Baptists or the Presbyterians? The pre-mills, the post-mills, or the uh, all-mills? Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, past-trib? You know, we can go on and on. Uh, some would say I already have. But uh, uh, if it's just personal illumination, then it, it has signal, signally failed. Because there's no unanimity. Where can you look and find perfect unanimity, though? In the writings of the Apostles. And that's what Jesus is talking about. A special ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles, teaching them all things and bringing to their remembrance all that He said. That's why we have four inerrant Gospels, either written by apostles or by associates of apostles under their care, under their oversight. So this is why we have the epistles. This is why we have the Gospels. The epistles are a result of the Holy Spirit teaching them all things. And these epistles that the apostles or associates wrote are written by inspiration in fulfillment of Jesus' promise here. So the Gospels, the epistles are results of this ministry. Look at the next chapter, chapter 15, and look at verses 26 and 27. 
When the Advocate, the Parakletos, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness also because you've been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit's ministry would be to witness of Christ to the apostles, and their resultant witness would be a product of his ministry. They would witness as inerrantly led and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's more. Look at the next chapter, chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now again, if you're going to say that's all Christians, then which ones did he guide into the truth? I could name other differences. Uh, But it's not a general semi-mumbly guidance. It is an effectual guidance. It is the guidance of direct inspiration so that what they bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And what they loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven so that they will speak the mind of God. So again, verse 13, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He and he will disclose to you what is to come. There's the book of Revelation. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So Jesus has what's of the Father, and the Spirit takes what's of Jesus. And so basically, when the Spirit leads them into the truth, he's leading them into the truth of God. The truth of the Father given to the Son, given to the Holy Spirit, and led uh, through the apostles. So this is the gift. That's the meaning of the gift. And we see that gift, letter C, implemented through the apostolic office, that office which they all share, Peter being the first among equals, but all apostles share this office. Letter C, implemented through the apostolic office. And to see that reflected on, look at Second Peter 3, towards the end of your New Testament. But do turn there with me. Some of these verses are less appreciated than they should be. Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says, now, beloved, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere minds by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, that's such, such simple, basic language that it's easy perhaps to read right past it, but do you see what you just read? The commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken to your apostles. Okay, let's spoken by your apostles. So wait a minute. Whose command is it? This is an actual, not a rhetorical question. Whose command is it? In the text. It's right there. Thank you. Of the Lord and Savior. But who speaks it? The apostles. So wait a minute. Is it the apostles speaking or is it Jesus speaking? And of course, the trick answer is yes, exactly. When the apostles speak, Jesus speaks. You know, you could put it this way. I don't know. I'm just, you know, reaching out here. You could say that, well, when they bind something on earth, it was already bound in heaven. And when they lose something on earth, it was already loosed in heaven. What they say is what Jesus says. Why? Because they're that smart? No. the, the, The gospels spill a lot of ink making that very clear. It's not because they're that smart. 
It's because the Holy Spirit did this ministry because that was the will of Jesus. Because that's Jesus' gift to His church. Because that's the teaching office of the church. The office of apostle and, and the prophet as well. Speaking the words of God just exactly like in the Old Testament. So the apostles spoke the words of Christ. And we've seen that true of Peter. We've seen that true of the others. And you've, you've heard me mention Paul a couple of times. You say, Where do you get Paul? Well, let's look in this same chapter and drop your eyes down to verses 15 and 16. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom, what's the next word? Given him. Given by whom? By God. By Jesus. By the Holy Spirit. He looks to Paul and sees the same exact ministry that he exercises. Just as our beloved brother Paul, now there's more though, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Well, now that's a lovely thought. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did he just call Paul's writings? What did he just equate them to? Scriptures. Scriptures. The pagans distort scriptures. Like they distort Isaiah and they distort Genesis and they distort Romans. Wait a minute, what? You're saying Romans is on a level with Isaiah and Jeremiah? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. How could Paul do that? through the wisdom given him. Why was that wisdom given him? Because he was an apostle. That is, that is what that office means, and that's what that office is for. It's the teaching office of this new society that Jesus would build. The church, the apostles. Now, you say, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to go off script a little bit here, but you say, well, so... Uh, so you're saying you're an apostle. No, I, assert, I, am, I am saying very much I am not an apostle. There are no apostles today. That gift has fulfilled its purpose, and it has succeeded in exactly what Jesus wanted it for, and having done so, it retired uh, at the end of the first century. We have its product here in Scripture. Where do I come in? My role is just to teach it, to do my best. Well, my role, first of all, is to understand it, believe it, do it, live it, and I also get to teach it. But I, my, my ministry is uh, worth more or less exactly in proportion to how faithfully I teach it. It's the authority. And the role of the elder in the church is to prescribe the limits, to say this is what that teaches and this is outside of what that teaches. And he has to reflect this because this is the sufficient and the complete word of God. So now let's go on and talk finally about the experience of Christ's gift. Roman numeral 2, the experience of Christ's gift. First of all, in our churches, letter A, this new society Jesus was going to build. Remind me again what chapter of the Bible talks about the beginning of this new society? Acts chapter 2, exactly. Thank you, sister. Let's turn there and look at Acts chapter 2 and look at Acts 2, 42. Now, this is after the first Christian sermon. The Holy Spirit has been outpoured the body of Christ, the church, is formed. Peter preaches. People flow into it and are baptized to show that they're flowing into it. And what do these new converts, what do these Christians, these church members, 
do. Verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. I don't even read the others because they grow out of the apostles' teaching. The central issue is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now I can imagine somebody, probably from California uh, or Austin, saying, hmm, they shouldn't have done that though, should they? They should have devoted themselves to Jesus' teaching, not the apostles' teaching. That's where everything went wrong. They departed from Jesus' teaching and they made up this new doctrine. There are people who say this, by the way. I think the silliest things that you hear me say, you think nobody really says that. Yeah, sadly they do. Sadly they do. Paul was the inventor of Christianity, you hear. Not Jesus. So here, they, should, they shouldn't have been studying the apostles' teaching. They should have been studying Jesus' teaching, right? What's the answer to that? You all should be able to give it today. Same thing. The apostles' teaching is Jesus' teaching because this is the time of those present tense verbs. Sorry, future tense verbs. I will build my church and I will what? Give you the keys and what you bind will have been bound. And so the apostles' teaching is Jesus' teaching. So when they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, they devote themselves to the teachings of Christ. And so exactly today. You ever hear anybody say, I'm not in a doctrine, I just want to love Jesus. Here is somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about and probably doesn't know Jesus at all. Somebody who says, well, I don't want to get into doctrine. He doesn't want to know Jesus then. I don't want to study Bible stuff. Okay, well, then you don't want to know Jesus. Because that's what Jesus' church does. That is what Jesus wants his church to do. Uh, look at Colossians 3.16. And I remind you as we get there, these, these words have been quoted often about individuals. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Oh yes, I should have peace. But these are not words addressed to individuals in the first place. Paul's speaking to a church here telling the church to let peace rule in their hearts. And he also tells the church, verse 16, let the word, now hear this, you need to let these words echo in your ears for a moment. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And the word of Christ, of course, is the apostles' doctrine. It's the word of God, including obviously the whole Old Testament because Jesus uh, spoke of it as being the word of God, but it also includes all the teaching of the apostles and their associates that we have in the New Testament. That word of Christ is what we're supposed to be about. It's supposed to be the focal point. Dwell in you richly, he says. And you know, every time I say this, I probably say this same thing, that in many churches, if the word of Christ dwelt there at all, it would be a huge change. But he doesn't just say it all, does he? What does he say? Let it dwell in you richly. Richly. And if anybody says, boy, that... In fact, I've heard people say that of, of a certain church's service. Boy, that's a lot of Bible teaching there. The response should be, praise God. <laughs> just following orders. I mean, this is what we're supposed to do, isn't it? That's just exactly what we're supposed to do. But now, with this echoing in your mind, turn to Ephesians 5 with me. And let me show you a little something. You got a minute, right? Well, I hope you do because I'm going to take it. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine. You say, ah, oh, yes, good. I know that verse. That's the Holy Spirit verse. Yes, it is. Do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Ah, oh, yes, what a lovely thought. Wait, keep reading. Keep reading. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord? Didn't we just read something exactly like that? That's Colossians 3.16, right? But in Colossians 3.16, what's that a result of? The word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Here, what's it a result of? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? They overlap. Basically the same thing. The mark of a congregation of people filled with the Holy Spirit is that the Word of Christ will dwell there richly. Can I hear an amen? That's the mark of a real Holy Spirit congregation. The mark of a real Holy Spirit congregation is the Word of Christ dwells in there richly. And people praise God according to God's truth, according to God's Word. So there it is, exercised by churches, implemented in churches. Christ gave the apostles the keys to bind and loose, and so their writings are how Jesus shows his lordship in the church. How does Christ exercise his lordship in the church? By the writing of the apostles, because that's what binds and looses in his church that he's building. He gave that apostolic gift for that purpose, and so the result we have is sufficient It has every word we need from Jesus Christ. If we needed more words, he'd have spoken more words. But this is all he needed us to know. That's the doctrine of sufficiency. That we have every word that we need from God on any subject. So that's in the churches. And finally, let's look at the impact of this in our lives. John 8, 31 and 32 is a more individual statement. John 8, 31, 32, Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You know these words. So I want to be made free. How, do I, how am I made free? I know the truth. Well, how do I know the truth? I've got to be a disciple. How do I really be a disciple? I continue in his word. Where do I find his word? Jesus isn't walking around today holding seminars. Where do I find his word? I find it right here. I find it right here. How do I know that? Well, one last verse. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Little bitty verse in passing, but so powerful. And that's where we'll end today. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul, in the midst of a very controversial chapter... Paul says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize, or the word could mean let him acknowledge, that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So simple, yet so profound. What I am writing to you is the Lord's commandment. He speaks as the mouth of Christ. That's what the apostle is, not the papacy, obviously, not anything that has strayed from Scripture. But the office of the apostle, that speaks the Lord's commandments. And the office of the apostle has done its work and no longer is in practice. So the mark and course of a disciple's life is to continue in Christ's word. And the apostle's words are Christ's words. They're all the words we need. How does Christ rule his church? He rules it by his gift. His gift of the Spirit-breathed Word of God. That's how Christ rules His church. The Word of God, the Word of Christ, convicts us, teaches us, instructs us. It binds our consciences 
just as it bound the conscience of Martin Luther. His word brings him and his lordship to us. He exercises his lordship over us through his word. This is the, de- this is the reformation we desperately need today. This is the reformation we desperately need. A return on the part of the pulpit and the pew and every last Christian to the sufficiency of the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great Word from our Lord Jesus and for the towering, thunderous truth in it. We pray that these words will resonate in our hearts. We pray for everyone here who has not yet known the Lord Jesus by submitting to the truth of God that you'll open that person's eyes to see the wonders of Christ and to flee to him for salvation and for life. We pray for all of those who make this profession of his lordship but do not live the words of Christ, whose lives don't show the impact. We pray, Father, that the Spirit of God will work to humble and convict and strengthen. We pray for every weak and struggling soul who clings to these words, that you will strengthen and encourage all those hearts to know that when we cling to these promises, we're clinging to the very words of God, that these words are more reliable and more sturdy and more enduring than heaven and earth itself. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.